All right, so I'd like you to uh, picture this. A couple weeks ago, uh, I'm at a restaurant with a few people from church. Uh, we're pretty much finished with eating, and for some reason, we're talking about skydiving. Uh, someone said they'd be interested in going sometime, and I'm, I'm there thinking it'd be interesting to find out um, and go around and guess who the adrenaline junkies were in our uh, group. So we were sort of like him? No, no chance. Her? Yeah, I could, see, I could see that. Them over there? I could definitely see them going. Me? Never. <laughs> uh, and as we, as we all talked about it, a bunch of us all said no for the same reason. Uh, doing this kind of thing just to potentially risk dying, not worth it. It's just not worth risking death for some quick thrills. Uh, as, as cool as it would be to say, yeah, I went uh, skydiving or I did bungee jumping on the weekend. It's just not worth dying for, is it? Uh, if, I had to, if I did have to give my life, uh, I don't think it would be doing something fun. I, at least I don't think so. Uh, the most common one I'd imagine is uh, protecting someone I know and love. Uh, but other than that, I think it's really hard to think of something else that's worth giving your life for. Uh, cue Jesus' words in the passage uh, just read out to us. Having to give your life for the Lord Jesus. How does that sound? I think the way the world's going, we'll need to know uh, clearly what we believe, what we stand for, and what shapes how we live. Uh, and this is the section of Mark where we get to that. Jesus has performed uh, many miracles where uh, we're pausing to understand who Jesus is and what he was about. And frankly, I think uh, if I was right there in Israel with them, I wouldn't really know who Jesus was. Uh, the disciples didn't really get it. The, the disciples saw Jesus feed uh, 4,000 people with um, some bread, a few small fish, uh, later on, they were worried there wasn't enough food. They just saw these incredible, incredible miracles by Jesus, and everything just sort of went whoosh. And the key thing about it is that Jesus gives the call to follow him, to live out a gospel life with kingdom priorities, and that there's a response to him and his words. And so today, we're going to look at what that life looks like. Let's see Jesus' words on this life, starting in verses uh, 27 to 30. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am. Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Uh, so here Jesus and his disciples are uh, near a place called Caesarea Philippi. If it sounds like Roman territory, you'd be right. Uh, so this is a place, it's named after Caesar Augustus. We're sort of like at the edge of a pagan place that's still uh, considered Israel. And Caesar is revered here. He's really important here. Uh, walking around, he asks his disciples, 
Who do people say I am? And he gets a bit of a strange answer. Some say you're John the Baptist. Other people think you're Elijah. And others say you're one of the prophets. Now, none of those are who Jesus is, are they? And okay, fair enough, the people uh, Jesus asked about in his question, who do people say I am? Presumably, none of them knew him. So, mistaking him for someone he's not makes sense. Now, what about those who are supposed to be closest to Jesus? His disciples, verse 29. Okay, what about you? Who do you say I am? And from one of the closest people to Jesus, we get, you are the Messiah, or literally the Christ, the anointed one. Hallelujah, Peter's got it right. Or has he? Now, here's the thing. For our Jews, they have a view on what the Messiah is meant to do, who he was. Uh, is meant to uh, bring the exiles back to Israel, rebuild the temple, help the Jews. To them, the Messiah is meant to be some incredible uh, revolutionary, one of David's descendants, his heir. And this man would lead Israel's military to glory against its oppressors. The Messiah was only a person, not someone divine. That is likely what Peter thinks. And maybe that gives us a clue as to why Jesus does the next thing in verse 30. He warned them not to tell anyone about him. So maybe there's, there's two reasons. Maybe there's two reasons. Uh, Jesus didn't want um, Peter to say anything because he wants to remain incognito. He wants to lay low for a little bit. And, okay, fair enough, they're in a risky place, a rather risky place. Uh, they could really upset the government and Jewish leaders. Or it's because Peter didn't really get Jesus. He didn't really understand him. Even though he correctly said that he was the Messiah, Peter doesn't truly get who he's talking to. And because he doesn't, at this point, he doesn't get Jesus' mission and Jesus' call to people. And friends, I think that's a huge eye-opener for us. Uh, if it's possible for the disciples to not get Jesus, even though they were there with him in person, isn't that possible for us? I don't doubt that there are still many many people who call themselves Christians, who, who think that Christianity is just merely about being a good person. How many of you have heard that people think Jesus was uh, a really nice guy, or merely a good teacher, or just a prophet? People still misunderstand who Jesus is. People still don't get this man. We don't get who this man we're supposed to follow is. And if we don't get who he is, 
we won't see the reason to follow him. And we won't think that that will be worth it. Uh, Friends, I I think um, this is something we all kind of agree on, and some of us, uh, we're willing to go to uh, different lengths when we think something's worth it. Uh, I know a good number of people who've gone here. This is uh, Moore Theological College uh, to get theological training. So uh, they've moved from Brisbane, uh, Melbourne, Perth. Uh, Downside is you have to live in Sydney. I'm just kidding. Sydney's not that bad. Now, can I say, pretty much all the people I know that have done theological study would acknowledge that going to Bible college is really worthwhile. This is totally an advertisement, by the way. College is worth going to. Uh, But even just by mentioning Bible college, we probably all immediately think of it as being uh, an investment. And it it is. Uh, It needs a lot of prayer, a lot of thought before you commit to it. Uh, College is a big decision. It's not one that you take lightly. When I was still pretty early in my Christian journey, um, I heard of people giving up their careers, uh, their chance to go study in something like medicine, all to go to Bible college, to train at a place like this, and I thought that was insane. But fast forward a number of years, Moore College is often cited as the best Bible college, and I'm fully aware of that now. Uh, And so it makes sense to want to go to the best Bible college that there is. If it's worth it, of course, you'll want to go and do it. People will make life-changing decisions if they think it's worth doing. Now, I I say this because I want to point out that because uh, Jesus is the Messiah, he's worth following the way he calls us to. Okay, but we need to remember that it comes down to how you view him, because what you think about him will impact how you relate to Jesus and what you do. So, for example, if Jesus is just a teacher to you, every time you open God's word, you'll probably think, what can I learn? Uh, What knowledge can I pick up? If Jesus was a crazy man to you, you'd write off what he says as nonsense. If Jesus was someone who's uh, done miracles, that's how you view him, then you'll be so focused on all the amazing things he did. But if he's your Lord, if he's the Messiah that you think is worth following, you will ask, how can I follow him? How can I shape my life around him? How can I make decisions to honor this man? We need to know that Jesus, the Messiah, is God himself. He's divine. He's more than just a military guy like the Jews thought back then and and still think to this day. He's more than just a prophet like how Muslims think. He's God in the flesh and he's come to do something incredible. Now, let's have a look at the next section, verses 31 to 33. Uh, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. 
And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Let me read the first bit just again. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Would you ever think that this is someone's grand plan? To go through uh, immense hardship at the hands of society's leaders. No one would ever conceive of such a thing. Certainly not rising again three days after dying. So I don't know about you, I feel like uh, in, in this part of the Bible, I'm, I'm Peter. How do you think that this is someone's plan? And that makes the next bit all the more real and relatable because Peter, he took him aside and began to rebuke Jesus. Uh, you know when people say there's a fine line between bravery and um, not so smart? Uh, Peter, you've just seen Jesus raise a girl from death, feed 5,000 people, walk on water, heal numerous people who couldn't be healed, feed another 4,000, and you're going to rebuke this man? Either Peter just isn't afraid, or we've just gotten confirmation that Peter didn't get what Jesus was about. Peter had the same idea of what Messiah meant to, as every other Jew. He didn't get Jesus' grand plan and entire reason for coming into this world. But I think there's a clue here that Jesus needs to be seen as more than just some political or military guy. See, in the previous section, Peter called him the Messiah. But in verse 31, Jesus instead calls himself the Son of Man. Let me read a part of the Old Testament that Jesus is making a reference to. So this is from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 to 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." This son of man that Jesus is referring to is, is clearly greater than any regular old human being. He's given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. And this isn't any kingdom we've ever seen, because all peoples, nations, and languages serve him. This is a kingdom that will never go away. That's what Jesus calls himself and says that he, the Son of Man, would have to suffer, be rejected, be killed, and then rise again. Peter obviously disagreed, but then we get the classic line from Jesus, get behind me, Satan. It's because his suffering 
rejection and death are central to who he is as the Messiah. Now, I don't know about you, I think if I was in uh, Peter's shoes, uh, first century, I've been told my whole life, this is what the Messiah will be like. Uh, I'd also both not uh, want it to happen. I wouldn't uh, want our supposed leader to die, but I'd also not really grasp it fully like Peter. Uh, in a sense, it shows how, how grand of a scale God's plan truly is and why we need to take Jesus' call so seriously. The plan was so grand, it sounded outrageous. It sounded inconceivable. And many people still think that it's too difficult to believe. Uh, a well-known atheist named uh, Richard Dawkins was saying the same thing. He said people don't just come back to life. That's ridiculous. Well, I mean, that's, that's why Jesus is such a big deal in the first place. People don't just come back to life. This Messiah, he's clearly more than someone who was going to lead a revolution. This Messiah is the Son of Man. He's God. When he asked who people thought he is, his suffering, rejection, and death are just so central to who he is and what he came to do. What Peter and Israel and the rest of Israel did and, and still struggle with is this case of a, a misunderstood a job title. Their, th their thought was that Jesus, yes, he's the Messiah. That means he's going to free Israel from their oppressors. He'll bring everlasting peace to the nation, rebuild the temple. It'll be glorious. But we've seen that he's come to do so much more. It's a seriously misunderstood title. The Jews misunderstood it back then, and they still do. Peter was basically like, no, 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 no. The Messiah shouldn't be dying, like he knows what the Messiah is truly supposed to be doing. Now, this is probably going to sound a bit odd, but hear me out. Now, in a strange way, it's kind of like um, a plastic surgeon. I think a lot of us have this uh, common understanding of what a plastic surgeon does. Uh, they do facelifts, uh, administer Botox for people who want to look a bit younger, uh, change people's face shapes. Uh, lots of other things to supposedly help people look good. But really, a plastic surgeon uh, repairs and reconstructs uh, missing or damaged tissue and skin. Uh, I think for many of us, we're used to conflating a plastic surgeon who changes a person's appearance with a cos cosmetic surgeon. And tell you what, eight years ago, I needed uh, some plastic surgery myself because I had an operation uh, to remove a tumor behind my eye. Uh, the surgeon said, uh, okay, I'm going to do this and this. I'll also bring a plastic surgeon in to finish things up. And I thought to myself, uh, Doc, shouldn't we be focusing on removing the tumor and not necessarily my appearance? But it was because I misunderstood what a plastic surgeon does. 
I told you uh, it would sound a bit odd, but friends, do you see how they're both a bit misunderstood? The Messiah, the Son of Man, came into this world to die on the cross and three days later was raised from death, conquering it, making possible a right relationship with God, forgiving us of our sin. This is what he came to do. It's been misunderstood by the majority of the world and uh, being rescued from sin has been misunderstood on how important it is. But that's not what the disciples thought he came to do. That's not what they thought they needed. Rescue from Rome, that's what they thought they needed. They thought they figured out what Jesus was here to do as the Messiah. And a lot of people are like the disciples now, aren't they? Uh, Like I mentioned earlier, Jesus has been labeled many things apart from Messiah or Lord. Good teacher, nice guy, prophet. And Christians, we aren't completely immune from misunderstanding Jesus either. I've heard people say, uh, I believe that I'll thankfully be going to heaven because I believe in Jesus, like because they thought he was a real person. But to diagnose our problem, I believe what actually is wrong is when we misunderstand Jesus, we don't realize that he came to rescue us from sin. If we don't realize we need rescuing from our sin, then we kind of can't be helped. Friends, how do you feel about your sin? How do you feel about Jesus' rescue of you from your sin? If your answer is that you're thankful that Jesus has paid the wages of sin, it makes sense to follow this man, to live as a disciple. But Mark's message is telling us this. A disciple has to do more than just understand Jesus' title. That's just the first step in following Jesus. The next bit shows plainly what following Jesus requires. So from verse 34, in calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory in his Father with the angels. Going forward, Jesus teaches his disciples more about following him. Deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me. Now, this word deny in verse 34 uh, can also mean disregard ourselves, which probably sounds a little precarious, but let me continue. Because verse 35 is where we get a better indicator about what happens if we do or don't deny ourselves. For whoever would save his life will lose it, 
but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. So basically, these two verses, 34 and 35, they're not calling for us to have this, this martyr complex. It's telling us that our natural desire to live for ourselves will cause us to lose our lives. Think about it this way. If we're just living for ourselves, that means we predictably reject Jesus as the king in our life. Have you tried to have uh, multiple masters or prioritize several crucial things? It's, it's so difficult to do, isn't it? I think that's also why we can get stressed in life. And what's worse is that Jesus says it's actually not beneficial for us at all in the grand scheme of things. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What's the point of living for yourself? We could work hard, gain all the wealth in the world during this lifetime, but what good does it do us? We'd miss the opportunity of using our lives for God's glory and the salvation of the lost. And never mind that our our wealth, all that we've built, can fade away anyway. And you know what? Jesus doesn't want us to go down this road because he knows that our lives are worth more than all the world has to offer. For what can a man give in return for his soul? Think about it. Hypothetically, if we could uh, buy a second chance at salvation, after being condemned, what is there in this world that could pay for a human soul? Is your house enough to pay for a soul? Is your car? Is all the accumulated wealth you have in the bank? No. Jesus says none of that is. That's kind of frightening, isn't it? Friends, don't go down the road of self glorification, because the door you go through, there's an unpayable cost if we want to try to go back. Instead, go down the road following behind Jesus. But what will that look like? Earlier in this section, we saw that Jesus says to deny or disregard ourselves, because, um, because what he's encouraging us to do is pick up our cross and follow him. Now, I think when I was young, I had it explained to me that it was about uh, being ready to carry a heavy burden. But if we remember that the cross was the method of execution, it makes a lot of sense that we're, that we're, we're to be ready to give up, give up our lives to follow Jesus. How does that sound? Are you potentially ready to lose your job? Are you, potentially, are you ready to possibly lose friends? family, would you be ready to be persecuted for the sake of Jesus? Or the other option is to live for ourselves and follow something else, to which we get a stern warning in our final verse. 
For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Seems like a sobering verse to have as our final verse. Uh, For Jesus to say, whoever's ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of them. But thankfully, we have great assurance it doesn't have to be like that. On one hand, it's following Jesus, the Messiah, means to potentially be ready to give maybe everything. On the other hand, not following Jesus means he, the divine authority in final judgment, will be ashamed of us. Friends, if we feel attention currently, uh, Thankfully, that means I've explained our passage well. But no one ever said that following Jesus was going to be a walk in the park. Our Lord made it clear that he'd be arrested, humiliated, tried as a criminal, despite being innocent. And then if that wasn't scary enough, he would die at the hands of his people and their political leaders. That's what following Jesus could entail, and we need to be ready or whatever the price of admission is. Now, what's something that's um, kind of that's costly but kind of seems worth it? So, I was reading this article the other day. Um, how does a flight to the moon and back sound? Uh, prices in the article weren't that clear, but the best price they were estimating in 2017 was uh, $58 million, and I'd assume that's in USD. Yeah, sure, why not? Totally worth it. Actually, I'll take that back. I think I'd be deathly frightened to see the Earth from outer space. But you know what? I guarantee that there are some people who couldn't afford it at all who'd be dying to go. They would think it's worthwhile. Take my money. Take my life savings. Take my arm. They'd know it's costly but they think the cost is worthwhile. Jesus says following him might cost everything. Do you think it's worthwhile? That's a question we need to reflect on, friends. Do you think it's worthwhile? Because following Jesus is likely going to be the biggest cost of your life. For different people following Jesus, the cost will look different. Uh, What does it look like? What am I asking you to be holding in your hand to be prepared to part ways with? It could be, or is likely, whatever's at risk of pulling you away from Jesus. For one person, it might be pride. For another, another, It might be possessions. For another, it might even be your family, friends, a loved one, a significant other. I've lost friends because putting Jesus meant I differed with their views on sexuality or the value of human life. I've lost friends simply because they don't like Christianity. I've grown distant from my good friends from uni days 
because I spent time at church instead of with them. It hurts. It really does. We need to be ready for it. We need to encourage or possibly lovingly rebuke each other that putting Jesus first and following him is worth it. Uh, I also don't know if there are people here today that are still deciding whether they want to follow Jesus or if, uh, or if they know people who are thinking about it. And frankly, it's important for us Christians to be thinking this too anyway. But I think if there's anything to be thinking and praying about in the journey to following Jesus, it's weighing up the cost that might be involved. And I want to remind us all that we see that following Jesus is costly, but worth it. Now, friends, today we've looked at how Jesus, the Messiah, came to give his life to pay the cost of sin, and in doing so, gave the call to follow him. This call is serious and costly. The disciples, particularly Peter, realized that Jesus was someone, the Messiah. But they didn't fully grasp what that meant. And the truth is, the majority of people don't either. But Jesus wanted us to know that he came to give his life and rise again, conquering sin. He didn't hide that fact. Today's passage makes that really clear. But he explained the call to follow him and what that would or could look like. It's not a walk in the park, and we shouldn't expect life as Christians to be a walk in the park. Because we need to be ready to take up the cross like Jesus told us to. Following Jesus is the journey of our lives, and we have a Savior who gave his life as he called us to follow him. Let me finish with a quote from Stephen Lawson, an American pastor, who puts it so well. The demands of following Christ will cost you everything, but you gain far more than you give up. You give up dirt for diamonds. So in our desire to follow Jesus, let's pray for, encourage, and challenge each other to push on. Let me pray. Father God, thank you for sending Jesus in this world to pay the cost of sin with the life of your Son. Thank you for the grace that you've shown to us. His suffering, rejection, and death show the seriousness of our rebellion toward you. But we often forget the severity of our sin. Please help us to look toward the cross as a, as a stark reminder of what following Jesus involves. We pray for help in encouraging each other to remain steadfast, to help us to persevere. We pray also to remember that although there's a cost in following you, that we're constantly transformed to see it as a worthwhile cost to pay. Help us look heavenward as a reminder of this. Please help us in this, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.